with invitations to them. Uh, one such invitation, for example, reads, Chiromine requests your company at the table of the Lord Sarapis, that's, that's the name of the God, at the Sarapain tomorrow, the 15th, at 9 o'clock. Sometimes the meals would be not only religious occasions, but also civil or uh, social ones, private celebrations, uh, like the, uh, the anniversary of the city or the appointment of a new magistrate. One of the surviving invitations was from a wealthy family, uh, inviting their friends to join with them to celebrate their daughter's birthday. Instead of going out to the local McDonald's, they went to the local temple, and there they had the birthday party for their daughter. And when the meal was over, and a portion of the meat had been burned for the God, and everyone had eaten their fill, the rest of the meat would go out to the marketplace uh, to be sold off at the butcher's store for the marketplace. All of which raised issues for you if you were a Christian in first century Corinth. In the first place, there was the issue of the temple meals, the idol feasts. What did you do when you got that invitation in the mail to go and share in that meal at the temple of the Lord Sarapis? What if it was your boss celebrating his daughter's marriage? What if it was your biggest client? What if you just wanted to go along? Then in the second place, there was the broader issue of the meat that was sold in the marketplaces afterwards, the leftovers. Was it okay to buy that and take it home and eat it at your place? Uh, if it had been sacrificed, perhaps, beforehand to a god? What if that meat that you, you bought, you didn't know whether it had been butchered by a pagan priest and offered up and part of it burnt uh, as an offering to a, to a pagan deity? And then thirdly, if you could be sure, even if you could be sure about the meat that you bought, what about your pagan next-door neighbours? What about when your non-Christian neighbours invite you over for a meal? What if the meal that they cook you is cooked up with, with meat from the idol factory? Those are the sort of issues that Paul turns to address in these next three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 8 and 9 and 10. Now, at one level, they're quite remote from our experience, aren't they? If you're going to try and attract the attention of the command, the... Uh, the interest of a bunch of 21st century uni students, you probably wouldn't start the chapter now about meat sacrificed to idols. This isn't one of those kind of buzzwords to, to start the chapter off. They're the issues that would be faced by a Christian uh, a long time ago, really, in a first century Greco-Roman town. But at another level, they're our issues too. They're the issues that we face as we try and live out our relationship with God in the context of our relationships with our non-Christian friends and neighbours and family and the culture that we live in. What do you do when your favourite band is playing uh, up at the casino in Darling Harbour, the, the Temple of Greed? What about when a bunch of your non-Christian friends um, ask you to go along with them to the Mardi Gras? What sort of decision do you make? How do you, how do you go about deciding? What if you're from a Buddhist family and your parents or your, your fiancé's parents ask you to burn an incense stick for your ancestors at the family shrine uh, in the lead up to your wedding as a kind of sign of respect. What about when you're organising your 21st and half your relatives won't come to the party if there's alcohol and dancing and the other half won't come if there isn't? Maybe that's just a bad story. <laughs> but for every question I can put on the list, you can probably add three or four more in just a few seconds of thinking about it. For the Corinthians, though, the really tricky issues, the, the really difficult ones to work out, were the ones that revolved around those questions to do with your relationship, social 
food served at Gentile tables. And the reason that Paul devotes not one but three chapters to them is because they're actually pretty complicated issues. It would be it would be easy, if possible, of course, it would be easy to give simple and straightforward answers. Uh, on the one hand, you could give the answer of complete withdrawal. You could give the answer of completely withdrawing into the Christian world, only ever associating with Christian friends, only ever making friends with other with other Christians, only ever sharing tables sharing meals around Christian tables, only ever going to Christian schools and Christian universities, completely withdrawing and having nothing to do with the surrounding culture. It'd be simple to give the answers in that case. Or on the other hand, you could give the answer of complete assimilation. Go everywhere, do everything, say yes to every invitation. Blend right in, do exactly the same as your non-Christian neighbours and friends do. Say yes to what you're invited to and be a part of. Either way, you could give simple answers if you give an unqualified no to the culture that we live in, or if you give an unqualified yes, if you retreat into the ghetto, or if you go to the idol feast. But if you follow a road that is somewhat different from either of those responses, as Paul urges us to do in these chapters, then you end up with the kind of difficult decisions that these chapters talk about. And if we're going to be the faithful people of God, living in our culture and not withdrawing from it. If you're going to live lives that are defined by the gospel of the Lord Jesus and not by the laws of Christian tradition, if you're going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus in the midst of your culture and not just conform to the patterns and the values and the idolatries of the society around you, then inescapably you're going to have to deal with complexity. There's going to be difficult decisions to make fine lines to draw and complex issues to work out. And so these chapters here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 are kind of like a case study in that difficult task. They teach us really crucial principles about how to think in the midst of those kind of dilemmas. How to live in the world to the glory of God. But before we jump straight to us and our situation here in Sydney 2001, let's spend some time first in Corinth and get our minds around the Corinthians argument and Paul's response. So have, have 1 Corinthians 8 open in front of you if you've got your Bible there, uh, and follow through what Paul says in response to the thoughts and the ideas and the arguments of the Corinthians. What was the approach that the main group in Corinth took toward these issues? How did they go about deciding what the right thing should be to do? Well, in the first place, they argued, and we can reconstruct a fair idea of their argument from the way that Paul responds to it. In the first place, they argue, the issue was all about knowledge. They say in verse 1, we all possess knowledge. We are enlightened people. We are not superstitious or ignorant about these things. We're not primitives. We're capable of thinking these things through. We have knowledge, firstly, about God. We know, verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And they're obviously correct. The Lord Serapis and the Lord Isis and the Lord Zeus and every other deity you want to come up with, they are nothing. Every god in the, in the pagan pantheon is just a religious fiction. They are no god at all. They are deceptions and non-entities. When the people offer their sacrifices up at the Lord Serapis' table, they are just burning meat. That is all they are doing. There's only one god who really exists, and that is, Paul says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The others are all pretend gods. They're plastic gods. The writer of Psalm 
his hand on the horn. <laughs> so that the cars heading north from his left would just have to give way to them. And if they didn't, and if a car one day kind of ploughed into the passenger seat of our car, well, Dad would have the satisfaction of knowing that they were in the wrong. <laughs> and he was in the right. Was he in the right? Well, yes. Uh, he knew the road rules. He had the right of way in the situation. He had the freedom and the authority to make that turn. And when the police turned up to the crash site, they would say, the other side had to pay for your insurance, that he was in the right. But was it good driving? Well, 25 years later, I still don't think it was. And Paul says something very similar to the Corinthians. Are they right in what they claim to know about God and idols and food? Absolutely. Well, maybe, actually, as he explains a little further on in chapter 10, maybe they're not as right as they think they are when they go to that idol feast and take part in that table of the meal of the God. Then maybe there is actually something more going on than they assume. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time in chapter 10. But even assuming that they are right, even assuming that they are completely right, completely correcting their knowledge, completely within their rights in their freedom, even if they have the right knowledge and complete freedom, there is still something missing in the way that they approach the question. And the thing that is missing, Paul says, the thing that is missing is love. Paul says to them, verse 1, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. What is knowledge without love? It is nothing but pride. It just puffs you up with your arrogance about the knowledge that you have accumulated for yourself. The man who is too, he thinks that the big deal is about all this knowledge that he has, as if that was what mattered and all that mattered. That man, Paul says, ironically, doesn't yet know anything at all. You see, there's a certain humility isn't there? A certain humility that goes with true knowledge about God. Why is that? It is because the way that we come to a true knowledge of God is a humbling one. It is the way that Paul has spoken of in the first few chapters of the letter. It's the way of the cross of Christ. It is the way in which God has determined that this world will not in its wisdom know God at all, but rather in the foolishness of what is preached. The humbling message of salvation only by the death of the crucified Messiah. It is the way that acknowledge that our knowledge of God is not a matter of human wisdom or cleverness or correctness or investigation at all, but the way of God graciously revealing himself to us in the last place that we would have looked. And so when we really know God, when we know God, Paul says, as we ought to know, then we hold on to that knowledge of God with humility. Now that humility doesn't mean a kind of postmodern stroke of the shoulders. It doesn't mean just saying, well, everyone's right. Every spirituality is valid. It's all just a different perspective on things. That isn't what Paul is saying. In the very next few verses, he goes on to make the very absolutist claim that there is no God but one, that an idol is nothing. But the humility that Paul is speaking about makes those kind of statements, not in arrogance and self-assertiveness, not in order to demonstrate my right 
about pursuing their good. Which leads on to the second point that Paul makes, which is a point about conscience. Verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many gods, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Paul says, don't trample on the conscience of your fellow Christian brother or sister. Be aware of the fact that the idol that you may know objectively is nothing may well still subjectively have a certain reality for them. Paul is very, very aware that the power of a thing is not only in what it is, but also in how we perceive it. There are things which are clean, which if you perceive them as defiled, Paul says, verse 7, are defiled because of your conscience. And he says to the Corinthians, even if we take for granted for a moment that it is okay for you to go into that temple and eat there at the table of the pagan feast, and in chapter 10 he's going to argue that it's not okay anymore, even if it's okay for you, you can't just disregard the effect that your actions are going to have on them. And so your brother or sister, who has just come out, perhaps just come out of a lifetime of idol worship, could be led back into the very thing that they left behind to follow Christ. And the only thing you have contributed to them by your knowledge will be their destruction. Do you see the point that Paul is making? Ultimately, it's a point about the death of Jesus. Paul says in verse 11, Think of your brother or your sister. Most of all, think of them as a person for whom Christ died. Think of him or her in that line. And that in itself will give you a big push in the right direction to know how to act in a situation. Sure, there will still be complexities and difficulties to work out about what is best to do for them in a particular situation. But at least you'll be asking the right question. You'll be asking not just, what am I free to do? But also, what will be the best thing that I can do to serve him or her in that situation. Because if I sin against them, verse 12, if I sin against them, I sin against Christ himself. Well, finally, how do we put this into practice in Sydney uh, in the year 2001 in our situation today? On the one hand, you have to be careful not to misapply this passage. This is not a passage that legitimises the way that the whole body of Christ is sometimes forced and blackmailed to tiptoe around the most cranky and selfish of its members so as to avoid any chance of risking them them being annoyed or offended. Sometimes a whole church can be held hostage um, by the musical taste 
course, love takes into consideration the prejudices, the silly ideas, the, the touchiness, the sensitivity of others. Of course, you don't needlessly cause distress to others. Of course, you don't do unnecessary damage to the peace of the church. And Romans 14, Paul, amongst other things, talks about the weight that those sort of considerations should have in your thinking, your decision making as a church. But that is not, I think, what Paul is talking about here. Here in 1 Corinthians 8, he is not talking about the risk of offending the sensibilities of the easily offended. He's talking about the risk of destroying the faith of the weak, of leading your brother or your sister to sin. So what are some of the situations where that might apply for us in Sydney today? Well, alcohol is one example. It's the example that always seems to come first to mind in the circle I'm moving anyway about this passage. And there will be some situations where those of us who exercise the freedom that we have in Christ to drink moderately and responsibly and enjoy a good gift of God will have to choose to put that freedom aside in a situation for the sake of a Christian sister or brother who doesn't have the same self-control. It would be no comfort to us to know that we were within our rights if our company and our example actually led them back into an enslavement. I remember seeing one of the guests passing out paralytic um, at a party that I went to when I was in EU, hosted by an EU friend of mine. It doesn't mean we, we demonise alcohol in the Christian community, but it does mean that in that example, as in many others, we think carefully and lovingly and responsibly about how we exercise our freedom and about the impact that our actions will have on others. But there's many other examples, aren't there? There are many other enslavements and idolatries in our own society. Many other enslavements that people come out of when they come to faith in Jesus. There are many, many people in our own city, maybe in your own family, um, who do worship gods, idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, who have them in a shrine in the house. There is the materialism and the greed that the New Testament tells us again and again is idolatry. In the part of Sydney where I live in the inner west, there's the worship of Mary and the saints and the enslavement to religious tradition. There's the hedonism and the pleasure worship of good old Aussie culture, the worship of beer and sex and expensive holidays and holiday houses and possessions and toys. And in the middle of a culture like that, there is also the Christian culture of our churches, the Christian culture of the baby boomer generation, our parents, and in our own generation too, the Christian culture of our day, uh, that is really uh, adolescent, I think, and not adult. The Christian culture that has never really grown out of the immaturity of our teenage years, when the big issues of our lives were all about uh, asserting our freedom to do what we want, uh, testing the limits of our parents' authority, and wanting to fit in with the peer group around us. And as followers of Jesus, Surrounded by those influences, in the midst of that culture and the culture of our, our churches too, in that context, we need to interact with others in a way that not only exercises the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom from superstition and legalism and religion, the freedom from all those pagan to 
Tomorrow, 